Some families you're born into, and others you get to choose. Empires rise and fall, generations come and pass, and through it all, family endures. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author Fonda Lee. Her latest novel is Jade Legacy, which concludes the critically acclaimed Greenbone saga by Orbit Books. Fonda and I discuss the nitty-gritty of her world-building process, how to craft an impactful action scene, and how to invest readers in morally gray characters. I had a wonderful time chatting with Fonda. Let's see what she had to say. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Fonda. It's so great to have you here on the podcast. It's great to be here, Travis. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I guess to kick things off, I always like to ask people, can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? Well, for me, I think my love of fantasy came from being a really voracious reader. So I was that kid who would just be happy to be left alone in the library until it closed. So when I was little, my mom just let me stay there for hours and I devoured um, Chronicles of Prydane and Narnia and, um, you know, all, all the sort of every bit of fantasy um, literature that I could get my hands on on that age, that age. But um, in science fiction, it was definitely Star Trek The Next Generation. And I can, I can credit my dad for that because he was a big Star Trek fan. Um, he tells a story about how he would hold me on his lap while watching the original series. And then when I was a bit older, um, Star Trek TNG was like the weekly appointment that I always had to keep. So, um, so I came at my love of speculative fiction pretty young. Yeah, I think that's kind of a recurring theme with most people I talk to is it's always really young. I feel like everyone starts out reading speculative fiction and then maybe from there they either stop reading or they branch into other genres. Right. I suppose at some point, um, some people feel like they outgrow it. And then those of us uh, who never outgrow it turn it into like careers. (laughs) Exactly. And those are the people with the best and most vivid imaginations. So it kind of works out perfectly. Well, so I did see a Twitter thread of yours a while back about how science fiction and fantasy are both sort of two sides of the same coin. Um, And as someone who debuted in science fiction and is arguably most famous for your fantasy series, I'd love to hear your thoughts kind of on the difference between the two or potentially how similar they are. Yeah, I always feel a little bit torn about this question because on one hand, I really do feel like they are two sides of the same coin. And for me, they aren't different because I approach writing them in the same way. When I start off with an idea, I don't think, oh, am I going to write a science fiction novel or a fantasy novel? I just have an idea. And whether I'm using technology as the speculative premise or magic as the speculative premise, I feel like the ideas and the themes and the things that I want to explore are similar across the two. So there's that side of me that is like, they're the same. But then I also recognize that um, from an aesthetic perspective and from a market perspective, there are definitely readers who gravitate more strongly towards fantasy and those that gravitate really strongly towards science fiction. And I think there is an element of them being two sides of the same coin, but facing in different directions, because oftentimes fantasy is engaging with themes of history and tradition, while as science fiction is forward-looking and is often 
uh, futuristic and looking at change and where humanity is going from here on out. So there is, I think, a really big overlap between the two of them and a gray space, which is personally where I find um, a lot of exciting and interesting stuff being created these days. And after all, there is science fantasy, right? Star Wars is both fantasy and science fiction, and it's phenomenally popular. So um, I think that maybe instead of thinking of them as like two sides of the same coin, they are like on some spectrum and you know where you where you fall on that spectrum in terms of you know your your style your aesthetic taste um might gravitate you towards one side or the other and i've been told that like the fantasy i write because it's a hard magic system and it's very grounded it's not very fantastical in the sense that there's not a lot of like high magic and spell work and things like that, that it feels science fictional in the way that I tackle it. So yeah, I I often feel like very much at home in both science fiction and fantasy, and I read widely across both. Yeah, as a reader, I've never been too fussed about kind of like exactly where that dividing line is between the two or like you say I I really like the idea of the spectrum because I feel like pretty much everything falls on the spectrum and like arbitrarily grouping things in one category or the other mainly serves a marketing purpose and I think my like layman's opinion is that science fiction benefits from being easier to have like sets of spaceships for movies and television than uh, fantasy a lot of the time. And so I guess maybe there's kind of like a film versus book divide there for some people with the stories they're expecting. Yeah, it is sort of interesting how that has happened in that um, a lot of people who say they don't like to read science fiction love science fiction media. And there's, you know, there's so much great science fiction that uh, is out there. And I think there's still maybe a perception that science fiction literature is for like the really hardcore, like tech nerd (laughs) segment of the readership and that it doesn't engage as much with like character and emotions. Well, I don't think that is necessarily true. Um, Certainly not now, but, um, but yeah, people who say they don't like science fiction, I always want to interrogate them a bit and be like, really? Really? Do you like Jurassic Park? Do you like Frankenstein? (laughs) It's like, yeah, I assume you've never seen Star Wars or Star Trek or any Marvel movie or anything like that. But yeah, so from a past episode, I think it was a couple years ago now on the do-it-yourself MFA podcast, uh, you said that your number one writing tip was for writers to pursue the story that most interests them and that they're most capable of writing and definitely paraphrasing here. But how exactly does one go about figuring out what idea that is in the first place? That is something that I think feels really personal to every writer because you get your ideas from anything and everything. Um, for me personally, when I have an idea in my mind, it usually starts as a single seed or a granule of something. Um, it could be a character that comes to mind. It could just be a tone or a, a single plot point, um, or uh, in my in the case of Jade City, uh, just the title and a sense of the aesthetic of that world. And I sit with that for a really long time, and I let it just kind of gradually accumulate material around it. And I know that it's going to take years for this project to come to fruition. So you, as a writer, you do have to be really passionate about the idea in order to stick with it in the long term. As for how to find that for yourself, for me, it's the ideas that won't leave my head. So if you are kind of wondering, well, how do I 
find out what are your, what I'm most passionate about. Well, what is it that you find yourself coming back to over and over again? Um, that like you, you just, and, and you could think about your own favorite media, your own, the books that you reread, you know, the films that you rewatch, what is it about them that draws you? And if you can find that in your own writing, your own ideas, that's something um, that will carry you through that process. Um, like, for example, I remember thinking, gosh, I've like watched The Godfather multiple times. Um, why do I rewatch Full Metal Alchemist <laughs> Brotherhood every single year? You know, like there's always those stories that you come back to and there's something about them and you want to feel that way about your own story because... You, that's literally what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to reread this thing like dozens of times. And there's going to come a point when you are sick of it. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the unfortunate truth. And I feel like so many people assume that like once this magical muse strikes a writer, right, that it's all just like fun and games from there. But like if you're going to have to work that hard for that long at something, I feel like you do have to be in love with an idea. And I would say there has to be something about it that you just find really cool. Now, I have this like... Mm -hmm cool theory of literature, which is that the thing that like pulls you into the story is that spark of like, wow, that's really cool. Um, I've been teaching writing classes lately and I mention uh, Philip Pullman's The Golden Compass as an example. And that like is a series that has really heavy themes of like institutionalized religion and like oppression of dogma and like all these things. But it has armored bears. Like armored bears are just really cool. Like what is that one thing, that spark where it's like that is the cool thing that is going to make you and your readers be like, yeah, I just want to be in that world because it's cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a reason why they put the armored bear on the uh, all the posters and trailers and stuff for the exactly. original movie however many years ago that was. I know the new show is out now and by all accounts is far better than the movie was. I haven't seen the new show yet on my on my two watch list. Yeah, the the two watch list and the two read list uh, ever growing and it's really hard to chip away at them. Yeah. If only we had more time. Um, but yeah, I, I actually didn't realize that uh, you were teaching writing classes. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? What kind of writing have you been teaching? Oh, um, I've been teaching classes at, uh, you know, different workshops, cons, mm -hmm. um, Clarion West. I was just teaching at the Alpha Workshop, which is a teen speculative fiction writing workshop um, during the summer. Uh, so yeah, I, I um, enjoy it. Uh, and um, it is also a chance for me to engage with writers who are kind of in, in their early career. And also I find that sometimes like teaching helps to helps you as a writer as well. Like you have to articulate some of your process in order to be able to teach it. And that helps clarify it for yourself. Nowhere near as creative, but I had the exact same experience in university when I was teaching like how to solve electric circuits to students. Uh, there is nothing that makes you learn the fundamentals of something as fast as having to explain that to someone else. But yeah, so you are here to uh, promote Jade Legacy and in general the Greenbone Saga. So let's dive into that, why don't we? Uh, do you have a pitch for the Greenbone Saga? Well, the Greenbone Saga I have pitched in the past as uh, the Godfather with magic and kung fu. Um, it's an Asian-inspired um, gangster family saga. But, um, you know, I have most recently, like with Jade Legacy in particular, I think it's more... Um, it's it's more accurately pitched as being an intergenerational fantasy family saga because um, when I started off writing this series, 
Jade City I envisioned as being really the story of like the conflict between these two clans on this fictional island nation called Kacon, where magical jade is this coveted resource. And Jade City is really kind of focused on the the conflict between these two clans, and one of them is is led by the Call family. And then the second book really took that conflict and expanded it internationally. And the third book, Jade Legacy, which is um, will be coming out right around the time that this podcast airs, I assume, is the culmination of it all from an in, and it takes that conflict intergenerational. So um, that was the scaffold that I envisioned when I started it out. And it's just, it's really satisfying to have that come to fruition now. So Jade Lexi, it, it really is about um, a family and the transition of power and um, change in like from ancient tradition to modernity and magic as a resource and all of the implications around globalization and modernization. Um, and it's this huge story that like has taken me a long time to finally bring to a close. And I'm super proud of it and super excited to share it with people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what has it been like seven or so years now? Possibly longer if the idea had been kicking around into your head for a while. Yeah, I, well, the first book came out in 2017. Um, so it's been... Uh, and I, obviously I was working on it for a few years before then. Right. I, kn- I know you said, I think 2013, 2014, somewhere around that time is when you had that, just that starting seed, that Jade City title, and then kind of went from there. Yeah, I had that seed before I was um, published with my first novel, which I was, um, which was in 2015. So, and it was, it was one of those stories um, that, and this is something that uh, I've said to early career writers before as well, which is like, sometimes your best idea is not the one you're ready to write right now. Jade City was certainly, for me, an idea that I had that I knew I wasn't good enough to write yet at the time. I wasn't published yet. And I had another sort of more straightforward, simple story that um, is what launched my career. But um, but Jade Legacy uh, is like, well, Jade, the Greenbone Saga, I knew was going to be a much bigger story. And I wasn't I kept it until I felt like I was ready to write it. Right. And I mean, that progression that you're talking about of sort of like uh, within the city to then international to then intergenerational, that's kind of baked into the titles as well with Jade City, Jade War, Jade Legacy. Although in my head, Jade Legacy is always sort of titled as Jade as Fuck, uh, since that's kind of the (laughs) title that I heard going around for ages before it was actually announced. (laughs) You know, I tried. I tried to get my editor on board with that. (laughs) <laughs> for some reason yeah. they wouldn't bite <laughs> yeah funny yeah funny about that but you know what i should do i should make like mock uh dust jackets or something and like uh so if you want uh we could actually probably help you with that because i know one of my co-bloggers has already made that <laughs> <laughs> I'm going, okay we need to connect after this podcast because uh, I, I would love <laughs> okay. i would love the official jade as fuck dusk jacket (laughs) i'm just gonna because it needs that needs to sit on my shelf (laughs) i think complete with the fake quote of like uh jade as fuck as it ought to be written by george R. R. martin (laughs) (laughs) but yeah you can tell we are a very serious literary podcast um (laughs) so okay so I know you're a bit of a world building junkie, and I'd love to sort of get the inside scoop on how you approach developing KCON and the rest of the Greenbone saga world. Yeah, so uh, I am a world building junkie, 
And um, one of the things that I really enjoyed when it came to the Greenbone Saga was the culture of this fictional um, society. And building out the world was something that I did gradually, but like I really loved to draw on different aspects that like I'd researched about our own world and like different and including like organized crime, East Asian history, um, you know, all, all sorts of different things and like finding a way to make it feel really organic and built from the ground up. So with the Greenbone saga, the speculative element is this magical jade. The magical jade has been there for thousands of years and has been exclusive to this one island. And it's only in recent times that it's been exported outside of that island and has been able to be used by people who are not natively Kekanese. So what did that mean in terms of the world? And like that question was so fascinating to me because it played with this concept of like the blood right, right? Which is so common in fantasy fiction of like, there's these people who have like some inborn ability. But if we're talking about a fantasy world that is kind of latter half of the 20th century in terms of analogous time period, I mean, Blood right isn't going to just stay that way forever. Of course, there would be like scientific advances. Other people would try to figure out how they could use it. There would be trade. There would be commerce that would like spread this beyond the place that it came from. So all of those elements were really just just catnip for me. Um, and I wanted to build out this uh, this ancient kind of culture and society and all the elements of, of the Greenbone clans in terms of their titles, um, their idioms, the way they talk to each other, like the, the cultural values that they hold as a result of being the only people that can use this jade, and also how they're butting up against the modern world and outsiders and, you know, advances in, in drugs that are able to allow other people to use it. So I think part of my background as well as like a corporate strategist played into that because I was fascinated by like the economics of it as well. And like all the sort of the intrigue and the politics and, you know, the, the all of that came into play. Um, so the world, world building is one of those things that there's like really no limit to how deep you can go. And the, the question is, how do you communicate that all on the page in a way that feels seamless and doesn't like bog down the story. And that's like the challenge I think for fantasy writers is like, how do you create this thing that feels super rich and it like it's always been there and that, that's, that has this sense of history to it, but then get also get out of the way of your own story. I mean, so how, how do you personally approach that? Cause I'm sure there's a million ways to do it. Do you find yourself like writing too many world building details in the first draft and then cutting them out later to be like only the core of what the readers need to know? No, not really. I think I just try to stay really focused on the world as seen by the characters. And um, the characters, what's important to the characters is what's important to the reader because nobody has a complete view of the world, um, right? All of us see the world based on our status in that world, whether it's our race, our gender, our social class, our family status, what have you. So the world, as experienced by those characters, can come through to the reader just by letting the characters live. 
and I just have the characters go about their lives. Like they go to the temple, they go to school, they go to restaurants, they meet with different people in different stations of life, uh, they travel, they talk to people from different cultures. And if I just let the characters go about their lives doing what's important to them, the world will go by in a way that hopefully readers will feel like they're along for the ride. And the other thing that I do is I make sure that like I've rounded out this world with other points of view when it makes sense to do so. So there's a character in the Greenbone Saga named Barrow. He's a thief. He is not part of the clan structure at all. Um, and he's a minor character, but he's very consequential. And the reason he, one of the functions that he serves is that he's not part of the system that all the other characters come from. And so having his point of view and some other minor characters as well makes that world more fleshed out because you, the more you can see of the world from different points of view, the more robust it feels. Yeah, absolutely. And it's good to know that Barrow has another purpose other than just being the absolute worst. He is. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Although I'm sure I'm sure uh, part of the beauty of your books are there are so many characters that people could say that about because uh, the morality is definitely kind of blurred lines around everything. And I, I love what you were saying about uh, how you were building out the small details too, like the idioms and just kind of things like that that characters would say. Because for me, you can tell me the elaborate history of the neighboring countries back 500 years, or you can tell me that like, oh, so if Jade was the central point, people are saying, oh, yeah, how, I mean, how green are you, right? And you can kind of just implicitly know what that means. I don't think you ever actually spell that out or Jade and gold, but never together. Just like the little sayings like that. I really enjoy in a book. Yeah, I love coming up with that stuff. To me, the cultural details are like the funnest parts of world building, um, including the, the sayings, the titles, the names of the restaurants and the cars. I have so much fun creating those. <laughs> oh, man. You see, that's funny because a lot of people say that uh, coming up with the names is like their least favorite part of writing and they have to have like just a pre-generated spreadsheet or list or something and they can just pull from it and not worry about it. Huh. No, I like, I really, um, I love coming up with the names because to me, they're very much a part of the specificity of the world. So just saying somebody walked into the restaurant isn't the same as saying somebody walked into the Applebee's or someone walked into French laundry. You know, those are two completely different things. So um, the more specific the world is to me, the more real it feels. Yeah, and those are details that help ground me in a story a lot as well because I don't picture anything while I'm reading. So to be able to have that, like it's better because my imagination, I guess, has more to latch on to. But yeah, so I'm also curious, uh, related to the world building, what drove the decision to set the story in a secondary world? Because I know it definitely seems like this could have been our world where you throw in KCON as a fictional island or something else. I actually have notes from early 2014 or 15 when I was brainstorming um, the Greenbone Saga and I was free writing and asking myself, should I set this um, in, a, in our world or in a secondary world? And I had kind of pros and cons for each. Like there were multiple options that I had going. One was for me to set it in our world, current day, but like in a, in a real okay. city, like a San Francisco or a Tokyo, right? like sort of your traditional, I guess, urban fantasy. And then my idea would, there would have been like Jade is like discovered, like in our, in our current time. So that was like one option. Uh. 
Um, another gotcha. option was that it would have been like our world, but like an alternative nation in our world. So um, like a Wakanda, you know, but like it's the rest of the world is sort of as we know it, but there's like KCON just maybe somewhere magically in the South China Sea. Right? So that was like my, my another option. And I ended up going like hard mode which was like create a completely separate secondary <laughs> world. And at the time I knew I was going hard mode. Like I actually have a note in my files that's like, well, this is like the hardest option, <laughs> but like know what you're signing up for. Um, and the reason I went with that was because yeah. I wanted to create the society, KCON and the green bone culture from the standpoint of a place that's always existed and that feels like its own thing and that I can explore kind of like the history of how that culture came to be and and where it's going without the baggage of our real world. So if I had said it in like the current era, it would have been like a discovery of a new thing kind of story. Like, oh, all of a sudden there's like there's jade and there's this rush to get it because it's like this magic thing that's discovered, I don't know, under a mountain somewhere in the ocean or something like that. That would have been a completely different story. And there's also, if I had done an alternative earth kind of situation where there's KCON, but there's still like Russia and China and the US, that would have also been a situation that would have had the baggage of the real world. Then I would have to ask things like, okay, well, was jade involved in like, the cold war, like what, how would like, you know, there would have, there would have been too much trying to line up with like real world historic events and well, what's KCON's relationship. So being able to just have the blank canvas was just too appealing to me as a world building junkie. Yeah. Even if, like you said, that is potentially the hardest option. Right. But yeah, I mean, it sounds like you, you definitely knew going into this that nothing about it was going to be easy. Yeah, and also I didn't want it to be a specific country in our world. I you know I didn't want it to be alternate Japan or China or Korea or Singapore. I wanted it to be a place that felt really coded East Asian, but not. And that that's uh, something that I felt like I could only do in a secondary world story. And so the Greenbone saga features quite a few points of view. And with the latest novel, like you were saying, spans generations. So how do you keep track of everything? Are there specific tools or methods that you use for that? Well, I will have to admit there's definitely times I felt like my brain would start to come apart at the seams as a result <laughs> of this novel. Um, it, there, there were a lot of moving pieces. I had a spreadsheet with like all sorts of um, that, that I would track um, different, uh, plot lines and like dates and stuff. But fortunately, one of actually one tool that became really invaluable that I discovered while I was writing Jade, um, war was, uh, Eon timeline. It's this like software program where you can input all the events and the characters and like their birth dates and death dates. And it's super helpful because it helped, it was like consistent or the the timing of things and maintaining consistency there grew to be a big challenge. I remember one scene that I was writing in uh, in Jade War where there's a conversation. And when I went and, and double checked, I realized, no, actually, these kids can't be having this conversation because they're like nine months old at this point. <laughs> so I had, because I had shifted <laughs> things around and the way it fell in the narrative now, it like no longer made sense. So, um, so yes, 
just like a lot of, I mean, honestly, a lot of stuff I've just had to keep in my head, but I have, I definitely have spreadsheets and I have timelines. Yeah. And I think, I know uh, you said before that you use Scrivener to help organize your writing and possibly do the bulk of your writing as well. Do you have a specific like organizational approach you take with Scrivener? Not really. I think I probably use like 10% of the functionality of Scrivener. It's just a great way for me to, <laughs> to keep my chapters and my scenes organized and to like, if I, if I have stuff that I junk, I can like just move it to another folder, but keep a copy open in case I need to go back to it. Um, that sort of thing. And back to the, how to keep track of everything. I just have to say copy editors are just they're they are such saviors. <laughs> My copy editor has a whole style guide for the Greenbone Saga, and there's so many times I've gone back to refer to it. Yeah, I, I imagine they would have to, because <laughs> keeping track of all of that, uh, especially when it doesn't originate in your own mind, has to be uh, difficult, to say the least. Yeah, my copy editor will catch things like, do you remember that this place was like actually in mountain territory, so they can't go there? And I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> She's like, it's amazing. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, uh, so I, I do find it interesting because I think this is one of the first like sort of gangster stories that I've read, although I don't know, it, so to a certain extent, it almost evolves past that uh, as you progress through the books. Um, but I feel like gangsters kind of have this romantic appeal to them in fiction, uh, when in reality, they're not quite as rosy. Uh, so how do you approach walking the line between investing readers in these characters while not shying away from like the really awful things that they do. Yeah. So um, I have said before, uh, and haven't didn't really even articulate it in my own mind as crisply until I did say it, which was that I don't set out to write morally gray characters. I write morally gray societies, and then I write characters trying to do their best in those morally gray societies. So the Greenbone Saga, this goes back to that question of like, why did I want to set it in the secondary world? The clans are not, they're not actually gangs, like in organized crime groups like we have in our world. So they're not actually like, you know, the Italian American mafia or the Yakuza. They're based a lot on like the structure of those um, organizations. But I didn't want to write a like cops versus gangster story that like wasn't really the point. Um, I wanted to write like a family saga uh, that was in which like the characters happen to be gangsters. Uh, and so there are so many times where I have moments in the story that juxtapose these characters in their kind of like domestic life, I guess their, you know, their, their sense of um, community, their family, the like, honestly, like the things that they do that feel very relatable to us with like the very violent lives that they lead. And one thing that I keep in mind is I never judge my characters. Like no matter what they do, it's not my job as the author to judge them. The readers can judge them, but I'm just here to tell the story. The characters will do what they do based on like the personalities and the circumstances that I have given them. So I never want anything that they do to feel untrue. Like whether they, whatever they do, no matter how heartwarming or shocking or brutal, they're just they're doing what is natural to them given the context of you know the situation that they're in. So you have care. I have characters who you know people may be surprised or like like wow like these how can these characters do that but they you have to also remember like the 
the world that they live in, the culture that they grew up in, the values that they were instilled with, um, their goals, the threats that they face. And my hope is that everything that they do feels like a natural consequence, a natural reaction to that world, as opposed to a puppet master pulling the strings. Yeah, I mean, that that almost falls into, I feel like the goal would be initial reaction as readers being, how could they do that? And then the more they think about it being, well, how could they not do that, right? It feels like it's the only thing that would make sense given what you've established for the society and the character as a whole. Yeah, definitely. There's so many parts of that story where you're like, yeah, it's a bad choice and also the right choice. Like if, if that makes sense, right? Like you want, you want ideally the reader to feel like everything that happens in a story is both surprising and yet inevitable. And that I think is like, the perfect balance to strike as a storyteller is where the reader doesn't know what's going to happen. And yet when it happens, they understand exactly how we got there. Yeah. And I do have to say, as a reader, I don't love that when you were talking about the timeline program, one of the first things you mentioned was establishing death dates for characters, because (laughs) I know that people are going to be heartbroken uh, as this series comes to an end. Um, At least it won't be the first time, though. Right. I mean, <laughs> at this point, you know, they, they know they know what they're in for <laughs> in terms of uh, tone. And, and, uh, and you know, I, I think that, like, like, like you said, like, the society that these characters live in is a harsh one. Like, in, in gangsters and, uh, don't, do not live a, a, a safe life, and neither do these characters. Absolutely. Um, might even be a little bit of an understatement there. <laughs> But yeah, so I, I know you prepared, even though it's not like a one-to-one with them being actual gangs, uh, but I know you did do a lot of research and you were like reading interviews with gangsters and things like that. Um, is there any like surprising information that you learned from that that you were able to kind of help inform the story? I'm not sure surprising so much as just um, all the like little uh, things that like helped to create the world that I was going for. So like... Uh, there's there's certainly commonalities that I would try to like evoke in some way. So like for example, the um, all of those organized crime groups have like really strong kind of loyalty culture, right? And like signs of that, like ways to show that like you're in it for good, you know, like everything from like the really colorful tattoos that you, the Yakuza have, right? Like the whole body mods and to the really flowery oaths that the triad members take, you know, to the whole like Omerta like code of the Sicilian mafia. So like those are the sorts of things where it's like, okay, how do I evoke that in, in my own story with this own culture that I'm making up? Certainly one thing that was interesting was like I'd read and and uh, watch like interviews with actual gangsters and um, you know, oftentimes there would they would be like kind of bemoaning the younger generation. Like there'd be all these old mobsters who were like, yeah, you know, in my day, we did things the honorable way and like these kids, they just care about money and drugs and like, you know, we would never have done like blah, blah, blah. Like, so there's, there's like this generational gap, you know, between like older gangsters and younger gangsters. And like, it just, in many ways, it felt, it felt very real, very human, um, even though, you know, you don't think that you would relate yeah. to people like that. Yeah, it's good to hear that everyone experiences that. <laughs> it's yeah. not just, you know, us non-gangsters of the world. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so 
So I know you're a fan of what you call like sort of quote unquote smart action movies, uh, you know, where you can balance the adrenaline and suspense with the incredible characters and engaging with sort of these meatier, deeper issues. So how do you strike that balance in your own writing? Just always keep in mind that every piece of action is part of the narrative and that it has to be crucial to the characters um, and that action is really precious. It can't be just thrown about and misused. And that every bit of significant action and violence has consequences um, that ripple throughout the storyline. So I think that like balancing the cerebral part of the story with just the like emotional adrenaline part of the story is something that really appeals to me. It's something I do pretty consciously, actually, is that I have really heavy politics in some parts of my story and I have really visceral violence in some parts of my story. And I love writing both of them. And I love writing the political conversations that feel like action scenes, have the same sort of tension um, in them as like a physical confrontation. And I love writing the physical confrontations that happen because of like some political development and that are like, that are, that feel like really consequential beyond just like somebody got beat up. So yeah, I, I think of them very much as like two parts of the narrative that need to constantly be working in harmony with each other. And I, I like the comparisons you're drawing between the politics side of things and the action side of things. I feel like more and more I've noticed that I've, I feel like it's almost three things. I feel like action, politics, and sex and books are all sort of the same thing in terms of that they really rely on the motion to get the conflict or the emotion to get the conflict going um, and to really like make the scene work. Because I know I used to be able to be 100% down with the fight scene that was, oh, this character threw a fireball at this character and there was a big explosion and lots of noise. I'm like, okay, yeah, but now like I, I like to get inside the characters' heads and feel that scene as well. Well, I think on an even more fundamental level, what you mentioned, you know, the politics, sex, and action, they are all conversations. They are all relationships between characters. Um, that's just, the, they're conversing in different ways. Um, so, you know, you have to uh, keep in the forefront of your mind, whether you're writing a sex scene, a fight scene, a political scene, is that these are two, um, usually two characters who uh, are having a heated relationship of some sort. And that inherent tension is what drives that scene, regardless of whether there's fireballs involved or not. No, absolutely. That's that's a great way to say it. So I think moving on from there, talking about your work, any upcoming projects that you can talk about? I know you've probably been deeply uh, in the trenches with uh, Jade Legacy for quite a while now. Well, because um, the author is working ahead of the publication <laughs> process, um, Jade Legacy has been put away to bed for me for quite a few months now. And I have been um, facing the very liberating and terrifying position of being able to work on new projects, which is a wonderful place to be, um, but also really sad for me to be like leaving the Greenbone Saga world. Um, so uh, the first project I did right afterwards was write a novella in the same world. So I have a um, novella called The Jade Setter of John Loon, which is coming out from Subterranean Press that's a standalone 
prequel story, completely different characters with cameos by some familiar ones. Um, and that will be coming out early next year. And then I have a few other projects that are not announced yet that I will talk about when the time comes. But for the last few years, every idea I had, I was like, oh, can't work on that yet. Can't work on that yet. And now that I can, I'm like, oh gosh, (laughs) the floodgates have opened. But I do have another big series that I'm kind of working my way into. I know I know you like to do several months of research at the start. Are you still in that phase or have you actually started, you know, putting pen to paper, so to speak? So I've got a couple of different projects, one of which has already been drafted. Um, and then another one oh, that wow. is, yeah, that one's it's short. It's another, another novella. And then I've got another, the next novel that I'm writing, I'm in research mode, development mode. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. And I... Uh, I think o- over time, I've kind of heard those ideas shift for you, Where, but uh, I think maybe people could expect sort of the opposite side of that coin, more on the sci-fi side. I know you've mentioned space opera and potentially a science fiction dystopian thriller. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, and given the time lag for us recording this too, like this teasing might even be moot for you listeners. Uh, you might have already heard the announcement by now. Probably not. Probably not. So, but... <laughs> Things may shift around. Yeah. So uh, I also always like to ask people, are there just uh, any good books or media that you've consumed recently that you can recommend? Oh, yeah. Uh, Okay, so on the media side, I have just watched all of Steins Gate, the anime. Um, Okay. I highly recommend. Um, So Steins Gate is an anime about time travel. And the reason I'm recommending it is because I normally hate time travel. It is like one of those, for some bizarre reason, I'd have rarely, I've bounced off of most time travel stories. However, Steins Gate is like one of the few time travel stories that I've just like 100% invested in. Um, So that's what I've been watching. And then um, because I get ARCs and I'm sort of reading stuff that isn't published yet, I got to read an ARC of um, Brian McClellan's new novel that is not set in his powder mage world um but that is brand new world um and it's called in the shadow of lightning and it's not coming out for a while because i got an advanced reader copy but um (laughs) but i'm just gonna be the first to like publicly say that it's great so keep an eye out for it in like another year (laughs) whenever it finally comes out (laughs) exactly yeah whenever my uh Definitely not as advanced, advanced reader copy. Hopefully makes it way to me. Yeah, yes. I'll remember that it's uh, it's promising. Yeah. I kind of just want to ask you as well, since I started reading Jade City right around the time that I was watching this TV show, and there was definitely a lot of similar vibes to it, but have you seen the TV show Warrior? I have started it. I am um, I'm kind of saving uh, the rest of it to watch at a time that I like have a bit of of dedicated time to like binge the rest of it. But, um, but yes, multiple people have told me they're like (laughs) Jade city vibes. You ought to watch the show. So I'm, I'm prepared to binge it. Okay. Good to hear because if you weren't aware of that, I'm glad you are now, uh, definitely has some Jade city vibes to it. And I, I also am kind of curious just because it's an area that I'm not as familiar with, but do you have any martial arts or gangster films that you really enjoy and you would recommend to someone who's kind of new to the genre? Oh, gosh. Um, yes. Oh, what is that movie called? 
Oh, okay. So there is a Japanese uh, crime film called The Blood of Wolves. And it is, think of like uh, everything I've watched recently, probably the film that gives me the strongest Greenbone Saga vibes. Like if you could imagine a couple of um, cops working in John Loon, <laughs> this would not be too far off the mark. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So was that Blood of Wolves is what Blood you called it? Blood of Wolves. Yes. Perfect. I will have to check that out. That's exactly the kind of wreck that I was hoping for. Yeah, little known, but yet very enjoyable. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not worried about how well known because I haven't even seen The Godfather yet. So. Oh, okay, well, you can start there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a uh, way I like to close out all these interviews is just asking you, what's one thing that you're excited about right now? Okay, I've got to say the new Dune movie. That may be okay. like an over... Um, a popular answer right now, but I am I am really excited for the Dune movie. Yeah, I, I'm actually really, really excited about it as well. And I was someone who really disliked the book, uh, but I'm really pumped for the movie. Oh, I, I feel like I just have so much trust in Denis Villeneuve that like, it's, it's, it's going to be, if there's anyone who's going to pull it off, it'll be him. So I am very stoked. Yeah, and if nothing else, it'll probably be uh, the other Dune movie I've seen, which had like an actual rat duct taped to a cat with like a little electrical contraption on it. So I don't know what that movie was thinking. Okay, <laughs> I have not seen that. <laughs> it's probably better that I haven't. <laughs> it's probably better, yeah. Um, okay, so that's everything that I have for you today, Fonda. This has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You can find Fonda Lee on Twitter as Fonda J. Lee, on Patreon as Fonda Lee, or at her website, FondaLee.com. Magic, Kung Fu, and clan rivalry all combine in this epic family saga. In the Greenbone Saga, you'll find an epic story with personal stakes. As always, you can find us over at TheFantasyInn.com, or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. We've got exclusive episodes, video interviews, and more. Or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It means the world. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.